because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the basketball podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Toledo head coach Trisha Collip to the basketball podcast. Entering her 15th season, Collip has built the Toledo women's basketball program into a mid-American conference powerhouse. Toledo has hung nine postseason banners in Collip's time patrolling the sidelines, including a 2011 postseason WNIT championship, one MAC championship, three MAC regular season, and four MAC West Division banners. Under Collip's guidance, Toledo has amassed an impressive 296-158 overall record and 161-85 conference mark. Her 296 wins are the most in program history. UT is also averaging a MAC best 20.5 wins over the last 13 seasons. Cullop has a 419-268 record in her 22-year coaching career and served as president of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, WBCA, during the 2019-20 and 2020-21 membership years. Trisha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to talk to you. So many things we can talk about. I, I just want to start with uh, adding some value, which I thought you did an amazing job on Twitter to the conversation around Lynn Roberts saying that she doesn't go into the post game uh, locker room. And uh, some of the things that you added to that conversation give us even more direction about what you do. So could you take us through that? Yeah, sure. You know, it's one of the best coaching lessons I've learned. Um, I was a head coach at Evansville and we were playing at Colorado State. and. Uh, we had just beaten, ironically, Toledo um, and moved into the second round game to play Colorado State. And, um, you know, we before the game, I had tried to squeeze in this new little play I wanted to run. And at one end, I was teaching it. The other end, my staff was teaching it. And I noticed during the game, it just didn't look the way that we had worked on the day before. And so in post game, you know, I wasn't very happy with my team. I was really frustrated and, you know, probably took out a little frustration in the locker room. And when I came back out, Tom Collin, who was the head coach back then of Colorado State, pulled me aside and he said, you know, why do you still go in the locker room after games? And I was like, you know, because I've always done that. You know, I've been conditioned to do that my whole life. And he said, let me tell you something. Uh, that is something that I wish I would have stopped doing earlier. And, you know, it, the reason why it, it I had retrospect about that was after the locker room incident, I had two seniors come up to me and say, hey, coach, we weren't running that correctly because when you were at one end, the staff was running it differently at the other end. And, you know, here I was frustrated and no one told me that. And boy, did I feel terrible, right? Because, uh, you know, it, their frustration was was well uh, understood in me as well. And so what what Tom shared with me, and I think is very true, if you, if you don't go in the locker room, you take away the emotional intensity after a game of frustration just like I did, sometimes you may be upset with someone and realize later that, you know, maybe it wasn't even their fault. Um, maybe there's a chain reaction in the game. You saw something and in, in real time, it wasn't the true meaning of what really happened. And so by waiting till the next day and watching film, you get a clear vision. Uh, you can go in and properly address it because man, once you say something, the kids don't forget. And, and that goes for praising them too. Let's say someone had a 30 point game, but you go back and watch it and man, they gave up 40. Uh, you know, it's, 
did they really play that well? So what I like to do is this. After the game, we meet at the center court. Um, you know, I tell them a couple things like, gosh, next game we're going to have to rebound a little better. Uh, but listen, let's meet about it tomorrow. You go in the stands and thank people for coming. Our fans absolutely love meeting our players. Um, we go straight to media. Uh, so our media people love us because they don't have to wait for a half an hour, 45 minutes to get their stories. So we go right into media. The kids go right to media. I go straight to my radio show. Uh, I'm sorry, there's an in, in-house radio uh, event that's going on. So I do that while they're in media. They leave, go see their families. I come back down to media and it's all knocked out in a short amount of time. What my staff loves about it is they can get home and start working on their next scout. Um, they can get my film ready so that when I come back into the office, I've got my laptop. I can get right into evaluating the game and getting a true sense of what really happened. Uh, what my players know about me is that I always tell them it's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. So if we've won or lost a game, there's always room for improvement. And we always watch a highlight and a low light the next day that I've created that night while my staff is working on the next scout. And then I'll, after I get that done, I'll start working on the scout as well. Uh, but it, it's just a clear way of clearing your mind. I, I really can't put my laptop to bed until and go to bed until I've made sense of the game. And I want to make sure that if we didn't do well, that my practice plan, you know, I'll go back and evaluate myself first. Did I prepare us? Like if we're not blocking out well, how many blockout drills did I have in practice? How much did I emphasize it in practice? Um, and if I didn't do that, you know, my first my first thing I'm doing is going through and saying, boy, Trisha Cullip's got to do a lot better job this week to get us ready for the next game. And if we did really well in an area, it might be, hey, we got to keep doing those same drills we did last week because they really helped us. So in a, I know it's a long answer, but in a nutshell, it's really helped me from making a lot of mistakes that don't need to happen. And even to probably further uh, hit that point home, this past week, we had Dr. Spencer Wood from Icebox, and it's a mental training company, come in. And I sat down with him and I talked to him about not going in the locker room. And he said, that's actually really smart because when people are exhausted, they don't learn. And so when, it, when a player is exhausted, and even coaches, you're exhausted after that game, mentally and physically, that's the last time you need to be introducing new ideas about things you need to fix. Everyone needs to relax, clear their mind, get a good night rest. And that morning and that next practice is actually the best time to address all those thoughts and ideas. Well, I love that. And uh, this is the place for the long answers, coach. That's why we're here. So <laughs> that's tremendous. Um, and, and just adding a little bit, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I think a lot of the blowback was from youth coaches saying that, oh, you can't just leave them because you're not going to see them the next day, different things like that. But one of the connections that you made for me was how much parents value this. Right, oh, that yeah. opportunity you know, you, to see the kids right away. Yeah, especially in college, right? Because your parents may be a flight away. They may be three or four hours away. And so when our kids get finished, I laughed because we had two transfers last year that came into our program. And they said that the first time we did this, I must not have properly explained it, that they went to the locker room and were shocked that their teammates were changing and getting ready to leave. And they were like, what are you guys doing? Coach is coming in. <laughs> and then they're like, no, she's not. She's going to see us tomorrow. Um, I think it takes that pressure off. You know, it's just like, relax, go see your family, maybe even have a chance to go to dinner with them before they leave town. And then, you know, it's it, everybody's happier. It's just a much better situation. Um, I hate it. You know, you hear about sometimes a family that's driven or, or spent a lot of money on a flight to go see their daughter, and they didn't even get to talk to them after the game because that coach kept them in the locker room for 45 minutes. They had to go catch a flight or they had to get home because they had to work the next day. And, you know, I just, I love this whole situation a lot better. 
Uh, there's nothing that can't wait till tomorrow. And that's even if we're in a tournament, you know, it's, we're not going to do it. We're going to make sure that we're ready the next day. I love it. I'm glad uh, Spencer Wood added some credibility to it as well. And uh, I'm curious about your line, always done it that way, because that's what sits with me so often when I think about things and go, we've just always done it that way. And then the question is why? So are there some other things that come to mind for you about things that we used to always do and now you've found a better way? I'll be honest. I, I think there's a lot of things like that. You know, you look at there's so many things even with legislation, right, that are making us change. You know, you think about it, we went halves to quarters. Then we've gone into, in college, CARA hours, you know, and and we have all these different rules. We're constantly having to adapt and change. I think there might be certain drills that I say, man, we've, we're going to keep doing this because I know they work. And, and I've been very fortunate to be around some amazing coaches that have taught me some things that still ring true today. But let's face it, there's still things that are a lot better. You know, I think one of the biggest things, and it's a simple thing that we all talk about, and that's trying to make sure that we have more one-on-ones when we're criticizing the kids um, and that we make sure that, you know, we praise a little bit more in public so that they understand how much we really appreciate them. Um, you know, we say that all the time, but I think we all need to do it a little more. And I think for me, one thing I always remind myself is just um, to praise even your best players more and to, and to build their confidence more because you don't realize sometimes that even your best players really struggle. Um, with their confidence. And that was one reason why uh, we just brought uh, Dr. Spencer Wood up because my captains came to me and said, hey, if you were going to bring in a speaker this year, that would be the thing. Um, Not because we don't have it. It's just that we've found in our collegiate careers that that might be the thing that's kind of up and down a little bit. And it surprises you because it might be some of your best players. So, So with that, what were some of the learnings in terms of how to better communicate to them, especially, again, this direct honesty that kids seem to value. So were there some insights behind that? Well, I, I think I think one thing that I just love is just that bounce back ability. Um, you know, he he talks a lot about um, making sure that, you know, an average player, it takes them a little while to bounce back from a mistake and an elite player, it's it's an instant, you know, and, and you think about that and it's just very true. And, you know, he goes very in depth about these opportunities and really drives the point home. But in a nutshell, that was something that I think we took most out of that experience was just that, you know, we can't let, I mean, how many times have you seen a team that's maybe down 20 and they don't let the score bother them. They just keep chipping away before you know it, they won the game. Uh, it's, it's that mentality of the score doesn't matter. Our effort, our attitude does. And no matter what situation we're in, we're going to keep plowing through until the game ends. And that's what the most important thing is. We can look back and be proud of our effort and our attitude as we faced whatever obstacle we faced. I've shared this with coaches recently, but one of the things that I've done with my youth team is the mindset training that you're talking about is actually have games where a team starts down 10, say it's like 11 to one. And it's like, okay, you're not going to win, but how much closer can you get it in a certain amount of time? And that mindset, rather than just always focusing on outcome being winning. Composure is a big piece of this, right? So not letting things get you, you know, it's like that phrase I told you is never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. You know, it's, it's making sure that you keep taking care of the little things because the little things do amount to big things. And uh, I think, I think for me, as I've gotten to gotten older, this is my 30th year in collegiate coaching. I think the thing that I, I try to remind myself is my demeanor, my, my attitude, uh, they're going to watch me and how I handle stress and how I react to adversity. And I, I, I might have a moment or two, but I've got to snap out of it quickly because I can't ask my players to do that if I'm not doing that. 
So you mentioned legislation and uh, your role as past president of the WBCA, uh, which a tremendous organization, incredible resources out there. And one of the first that I think really captured, I think, us as coaches, our imagination with the different resources you provided. So I want to get into that. But before we do, just you mentioned legislation. Curious. This is not a judgment. Curious. Why did we go under one minute instead of under two minutes for advancing the ball? You know, I wasn't a part of that committee, uh, so I can't answer that. Um, but I, but I will say that, you know, probably I'm assuming that we're following the same as the WNBA. Am I correct with that? Um, That's a great question. I might not know that either, but I know Phoebus too. So I was just curious how they arrived right. at the one. Right. I, I, you know, again, I, I'll be honest, regardless of what it is, I think it's helped the game. It's, 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 awesome. it's been amazing. And I, I'm surprised, overdue, right? <laughs> well, and I'm surprised men's basketball hasn't gone to it. I don't you know get you, why they haven't. You look at. I love the fact that we've gone to quarters and that we've gone to advancing the ball. I think it all goes to helping helping the game be more interesting to a fan, but it's also gone to being more consistent with uh, what we're doing in in many levels, right? So, you know, in, in the NBA and the WNBA, they advance the ball, they play quarters. In youth basketball, it's quarters. I think as much as we can try to synchronize all these rules, it makes it easier for the fan. Uh, and I And I think that's something that, we all have to kind of take into consideration as we promote the sport as much as we can make it similar. Not only does it prepare those those athletes who are fortunate enough to keep climbing the levels, but also for the fan aspect of following and understanding the game, I think it makes it a little bit easier as well. That's a great point. And I'm, I'm hoping we do that really soon with all the rules. But uh, uh, as past WBCA president, uh, you know, a wonderful term for you, but challenges obviously during COVID and all the different things that rose from that. But what were some of your takeaways from that experience? Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I had no idea whenever my term came up, I was the vice president under Jen Rosati, who I adore. She's fantastic. I learned a lot from her. And then when I became president, the pandemic hit. And so they they jokingly call me the pandemic president. But what was interesting about my term is I learned how to use Zoom quite a bit. Uh, we had a lot of meetings to try to keep moving things along. And, you know, I, I have to compliment it. We had a tremendous board um, and I got to know, you know, Corey Close really well, who was at the time was my vice president um, and spending time with with Jen, with Cordy Banghart, with Corey Close helped make me better. And you can't when you've got people around you helping guide the decisions you know, Jackie Carson Smith from Furman. There's just some tremendous people that I think what I took away from from this, and I'll finish up being by, or the past president when our final four comes back around, but what I took away from it is, number one, our game's in great hands. We got a lot of people that are doing some things behind the scenes that we don't always appreciate and a lot of different committees like the Rules Committee, um, but also that we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, I think what came to light during the pandemic and and it was kind of a, an appropriate time, right? Because we were looking at social media a lot was all the gender inequities. And the positive that's come of that is that we're now at 68 teams. Um, you know, the tournament gifts have have improved. Uh, now the branding has improved. Um, now the, the app that the NCAA uses now includes women's basketball, which it didn't before. There are still some things though that are still left and that is units of money that need to go back to the winners of the women's games that aren't happening right now. If you win a national championship as a women's coach, you get a pat on the back where millions of dollars follow that men's head coach back and the value on that campus. You can only imagine the difference. It's been great, great to have hardware in a ring, but when you're bringing lots of money back too, uh, you're a little bit more valued. So I think it's important that we move in that direction. 
I think the other thing is that obviously postseason play, um, the NIT has always been something that the NCAA has supported on the men's side. And in the future, we're going to start to see something change with that as on the women's side. The universities have always had to pay for that on the women's side and on the men's side, the, the costs are covered. So, you know, once again, there's some, there's a lot of things that were uncovered during that time frame that are only making our game better because now we're able to address them. Um, and, you know, even though it was a difficult time to kind of go through all of that and to see it and, and to understand that after all these years and here we in the 50th year of Title IX, that we're still trying to peel back the onion and fix things. Um, but I'm glad that we did and I'm glad that things are moving in the right direction. And uh, even though we have work to do, uh, I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish to this point. And I, and I think even now, you know, Corey Close, what a great job she's done as our president. Uh, so, so proud of her and, and uh, uh, just excited to see where we're going to head in the next few years. Well, thank you for your service of the game, and uh, I know it'll continue. And uh, back to your Toledo program, obviously incredible success, incredible consistency of success. And uh, you shared one of the phrases with me that's a part of your program, and I want you to just build on that, and that's build by culture. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you know, through the years, probably even my, I was a head coach by 29, and, you know, I didn't have any gray hair until I got through that first year, and then I had a lot. Uh, but I will say that, um, Learning how to choose who's in your program, part of that is building your culture. I think the hardest thing you do as a head coach is you hire. You've got to hire a great staff. They make your job so much easier. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to the new Southern Illinois coach as she was putting her staff together this summer. And I just said, how's it going? And she said something that was music to my ears. And that was, I'm going to take my time with this hire, these hires because I know how important it is. Uh, I wish when I was 29, somebody would have said that to me. Um, because I think it is. That's the most important thing you do as a head coach. So that's where the foundation of your culture is built, is not necessarily hiring great basketball people. Yes, you need that, but great character people. And so I'm really pleased to say I, I've got the best staff I've ever had right now. Um, tremendous people and, and people that I feel like if I've got to leave to go recruiting or if I miss a day for some reason, I don't worry at all. They're going to be just fine. Uh, because they they know how this program runs and and it it's to the point with their help that it can almost run itself. Um, but I, I think in in after you choose your your coaching staff, how you choose every player matters too. When we go look at people, you know, we kind of look at three things. So they're all A's. One is you know academically, can they can they be successful here? And do we have the majors that that are appropriate for that particular student athlete? What they want to major in. Um, the second one is athletically, can they help us? And can and when I say that, I mean, can they help us win our league and can they help us get to postseason? And do we need their position? So, you know, you may say, well, they're really good, but if we've got three point guards, we don't need another one. Uh, so now we've got to make sure uh, that not only are they a great player, but are they somebody that can help us win at a high level? And And that's probably the thing you notice the most when you go out recruiting is, wow, there's this amazing athlete. Uh, but the third thing is what helps us kind of narrow it down even more, and that's attitude. We're top 30 in the country in attendance, and and I want people that when they go out in this community, people will recognize them. I want people that that represent our program with class, that when we go do community service, they do it with the right heart and mind, that if they're not playing as much or they go through an injury, that they're going to be amazing teammates on the bench, that they care more about winning than they do about individual accolades. And that's a hard one, right? Uh, because they're all coming from programs where they were the leading scorer. 
But I have found that as we choose kids for these reasons, and we're very picky about it, that our culture all of a sudden has soared. And there's no, there's no question why last year we won 29 games. Um, and that over this time period, we've averaged 21 wins a season. That's because we've been very picky about who we choose. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the people that we have in our, in our group and in our, um, on our team because they, they're a joy to coach. And, you know, it, I think someone told me this at one point, you know, you're picking your problems or you're picking your solutions every time you pick an assistant or a player in your program and be wise about how many you're picking in a certain area, because if you're not careful, you're going to have too many fires to put out. And as a head coach, the fewer you can pick, the better. That's such a great quote. That's awesome. And uh, you, you also mentioned a blue collar gold standard. So talk to us about that. The blue collar gold standard, obviously it's a playoff for colors. Uh, but what it basically means is this. The blue collar part is everybody's going to roll up their sleeves. Everyone's going to take a charge. Everyone's going to dive on a loose ball. Everybody's willing to play defense. Um, everybody's willing to sacrifice the body to go get a rebound. Um, everyone's willing to pick up trash when we walk down the hallway. Uh, everybody's willing to do all those little things that when no one's around, that we do them anyway, because it's in the best interest of our program. Uh, when no one's looking, that blue collar is you get in the gym and shoot. Um, and that, you know, you're, you're, you're cheering on your teammates and you're doing all those little things. That's the blue collar part. The gold standard part is we have the highest standards possible. You know, we're a mid-major. We may not have the funds that, uh, Connecticut or South Carolina have, but we're not going to let that stop us. We want, we want to outwork people uh, and do the best of our ability, but we want to be the best academically. We want the best people that we possibly can be, uh, represent our program with class. And then uh, athletically, we want to represent this university the best, best way possible. So you put those two things together, and that is our blue-collar, gold-standard mentality. Uh, we don't expect anything to be given to us. Uh, we want to go out and earn it, and that's kind of where we preach that to our players. It's it's great stuff and uh, led to, again, incredible success. And you're the favorite in the MAC this year. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, one of the challenges a little bit being potentially a single bid lead is that you got to get a great schedule together. And talk to us a little bit about the challenges, because I don't think people appreciate that. Some of the challenges of getting games that help your program get to that next level. Well, you know, I'll give you an example. So last year we we won 29 games. Um, we went 19 and one in the MAC, which is a it's never happened before in men's or women's side. We laughed. It will never happen again in the near future because we have narrowed our Mac games to 18. So we're going to hold on to this record for a little bit. That's awesome. But, but uh, you know, I think what, what was tough for us was that during COVID, we scheduled more regionally. I played more regional games than I've ever played here because I was trying to protect our health. And knock on wood, we didn't have a shutdown. Uh, so I was proud of what we did. But unfortunately, that also meant that our net score in our non-conference games wasn't as strong as the committee would have liked it to be. And they didn't feel like we earned our way into the tournament field. So what we did in the off season was go out and try to schedule as tough as we possibly could with the games contracts that were available. So uh, luckily for us, Carol Lawson called and said, Duke would like to play and not only play us, but play us here, which that's like a unicorn game, right? Lightning doesn't strike very often. So we hurried up and signed that contract. <laughs> um, we had pushed the Cincinnati contract back. So we're going to go to Cincinnati. Um, and then they're going to return the following year. We had just played Dayton and Missouri state on the road last year. And those were probably two games that had we won either or both probably could have gotten ourselves into the NCAA tournament. Um, we're glad to have them coming to Toledo this year. And then we were able to add 
Michigan at Michigan, and then we're going to play Penn State on the road in Florida. And so what we're trying to do with this schedule, it's the most ambitious schedule we've played to date, is try to earn another pathway besides our conference tournament uh, because, you know, it, that's a lot. I think what was tough was we had been so perfect. You know, we were 19-1 and one to win over the long haul. So then to go into the conference tournament and get upset and by a very good Ball State team um, was very disheartening. And we went to the Elite Eight of the WNIT, but still it was very gut-punching, you know, gut-wrenching. So I think the, the other thing that makes it tough for us is that we've been top 30 in the country in attendance nine out of the last 10 years. So not only do we win a lot, but we also average a lot of fans. So it's not very inviting when we call people to try to schedule games. My assistant, Jesse Ivey, I tease her that she has the toughest job of anybody on our staff. And she probably gets hung up more than on more than anyone because when she says, hey, do you want to play us? A lot of people laugh and hang out. But <laughs> I'm proud of her because she's really, we, she stayed true to the course and she has really, really tried to help us put together one of the most ambitious schedules. And, you know, I think, more of us need to do this, right? Is stick our neck out because there are other pathways to get there. And now it's on us, right? I've talked to our team about, hey, if a couple of things would have gone a little different last year, when they put up all these like schools on the board, the committee, they maybe would have said, hey, Toledo, Missouri State and, and Dayton played all each other. What's the difference here? And maybe that could have gone our way as opposed to against us. And so now this year, you know, we, we know those games are important. And uh, we've got to make sure that we're prepared to play those games. Well, it's going to be fun to watch your team navigate that schedule. And uh, one of the ways you're going to do it is by playing man-to-man, which has been a pathway for you for a very long time. So maybe give us just a broad perspective of your man-to-man defensive philosophies, and uh, then we'll dive a little bit deeper. Well, one thing that one thing that we really truly believe is that if you can stop someone from doing what they like to do, if you can take away um, their favorite plays. If you can, if you can shut down their best player uh, or limit them, you know that's you're taking away a little bit of confidence from what that team what they like to do. And so it's really, really important that as we prepare the scout, that we're really saying, okay, what is it? What is the strategy? What is it they really like to do? And and can we find some ways, maybe one way and another counterway, uh, to make sure that we're limiting those opportunities for them. And, and if you can do that, you're halfway down the pathway. The second thing is by really being stingy on the boards. Uh, we really talked about that a lot in practice, and we were one of the top defensive rebounding teams in the country last year, and not with one of the biggest rosters. Uh, it's simply out of heart. You know, we really, we really pound that home to our kids about making sure that they're rotating to find someone to block out, to gain an advantage, to get going. Um, because, again, you only want to give people one shot, and hopefully that shot's contested. Uh, I will say that early in the season, that's something we're still working on. But I was so proud of our kids once we got to conference play. I really felt like they owned that and and really getting them to buy into getting those stops. If you're getting stops, what you're getting on the other end is probably a lot easier because if you can shut somebody down for a three, four, five-minute stretch, you're probably getting some layups on the other end. So now you're also increasing your shooting percentage because you've got high percentage shots on the other end and enforcing uh, some timeouts. You know, our, our team takes great joy in that and, and pride in that. And so I think instilling upon them, this is something that's needed to win the game. Uh, you know, we like to switch a lot uh, through four positions and then have a ball screen coverage for our five um, because we've got some fives that probably is not as advantageous for them to switch. 
Um, and But we do have some smaller lineups that we can go to if we feel like that's what we need to do. But we've really taken great pride in that. And uh, I love I love the fact that this group has really owned defense and hung their hat on it. Hey, Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about BasketballMersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and eliminating the fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. So t- talking about that, particularly the five in terms of not switching, are, are, they, the, are they the leader in communication? Uh, because that's one of the challenges when you just switch four spots or three spots. Obviously, there's a chance for miscommunication. I totally agree. Our five man has to be the loudest person on the floor because they're, they're back. They see everything. We talked to them about being that quarterback, per se, in the backside of our defense. And then also the person that, you know, maybe in back of them, they can see the whole picture. Uh, but we do stress communication wholeheartedly. If you're not communicating, especially in transition defense, you're not going to get matched up. I will say that that's something in the last two weeks we've really stressed is the transition defensive piece, getting the ball stopped early, making sure that everybody's in a gap uh, and that we're up the line so that we're not easy to penetrate and find an easy shot. One of the advantages of switching uh, is obviously it simplifies things. Uh, you don't have to teach all these different coverages, solutions versus different teams and whatnot. So can you talk a little bit about some of the other advantages that might be there for switching, especially one to four? Well, all of our kids have to learn how to guard a post up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and by doing that, you know, I think we've also become better at posting up at every position. Mm. And so, you know, we 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 learn how to double if we need it. And what's great about it is I don't have to call call a timeout to do it. Our kids know the call. Uh, we do work on it. We work on Xing out on the back side of that. Um, it's something we don't have to do if we don't have a mismatch. But I love the fact that they learn how to play the game and have a pretty good IQ at doing so. I think learning how to scramble out of that is what you have to spend some time on um, because kids have a tendency when they're young and when they've just gotten into our program to stand a little bit. And we've got to make sure. The other thing is when you're doubling, the best is you can't let it come out the weak side. Uh, if you can keep that ball on the strong side when you double, I think it makes all of your rotations a lot easier. Um, if it's coming out on the weak side, you've got a longer way to run. As my college coach used to say, you're in constant closeout, which is never a good position to be in. And so, you know, I think the the advantageous side to that is you're hard to penetrate if you're in the gaps. Um, you know, our kids are smart enough to know when they need some help when they're when they're being posted up and when they're not. Um, but they're very interchangeable in a lot of ways, um, and it's and it's difficult. Uh, unless you're bringing the five up to screen to really find openings against us. Uh, it's hard to find a three-point shot uh, unless you've got a five-man that can really shoot it. And we work hard on covering that as well. So you switch, they try and attack that matchup in the post. What's the first thing that that defender's doing? Are they trying to three-quarter front or are we letting it in and then doubling to try and force pressure? We like to three-quarter deny, um, you know, unless they're 10 to 15 feet off of the lane line. Um, but you know, if our post player needs help, a lot of times we try to play our five man straight up, uh, so that we don't give up a, a, an easy kick on the other side and we can stay matched up for rebounding purposes. Uh, but if we do feel like we have a mismatch, we'll double that. Uh, and that's where we really have to work on 
what are we doing on the on the weak side to get the rebound if the shot does go up and making sure that I think the biggest thing is you don't want to let that player turn. It's in the double. If they can turn and see or they can split the double, then you're in a bad place. So we spend a lot of time working on those situations so that we we try not to let the ball reverse um, and we try not to let them step through our double. Uh, where are so you bringing the double from primarily? Where's the goal for the double? Is it coming from the sometimes base? Weak, the yeah, sometimes weak side. Uh, and then sometimes strong side. In our last scrimmage, we actually worked on strong side. So I think you've got to have different things because you don't know what a team is good at really until you play them. Um, so I think you've got to have multiple ways to be able to do it and scramble out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is getting your kids to communicate and be ready to move instead of stand. I think the any kind of scramble drill where you can work on four on five, you know, three on four, and they've got to keep moving and talking is a really good thing. We spent some time on that today. Curious, are you doubling from a set location then, or is it a set person that's the doubler? We've done, we've done a little bit of both in the past. Um, you know, we've done big on big where it's a post player that comes in and doubles, um, or if they've got a player who's a non-shooter, that we feel like we can double off of and we're okay to not leave a shooter open. We've done it from the weak side that comes over to double. And then we've also done it from a strong side passer that's passed in. So really it's, it depends on where the weakness of that team is, or we feel like, or what I should say, the best educated guess of we're going to gamble with this stat. Um, because we all know that the higher level you play, uh, the harder it is to find a true weak shooter on the court. Most people have a lot of options. And so, you know, we study the stats, we study what someone's done in the last five games, and we may gamble on on one statistic of, hey, this is the kid we're going to double off of. Or we may say for this particular game, we're coming from the weak side. Or we may say, hey, we're going to go weak side first half of the game, strong side second half of the game so that we make them do something different. Okay, so they switch and now they're going to attack you on the perimeter. What is the coverage? Well, if we're switching, we're hoping we're not letting them get around us. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the most important thing. Um, you know, so we, you're receiving we, the ball. You're trying to force it back from where it came and not get beat. Yeah, yeah. we force baseline. Some people force middle. We force baseline. Um, but honestly, we try to keep our man in front of us. We're not so far up the line. Um, you know, I know we played, uh, for instance, Middle Tennessee State in the in the uh, WNIT, and they really get up almost like an ice without the post player there when you catch the ball in the wing, and they really don't want you to reverse it. And uh, we've played some different teams like that. You know, Houston Baptist kind of did the same thing to us. Uh, but, you know, we're not we're not that far up. Uh, we're really trying to keep our man in front of us. Um, but if they do drive, we really don't want it to be middle. And if they're isolating you on top versus a switch or in a matchup, you're trusting that player to defend that one-on-one -on -one matchup because that's what you're doing one to four, right? So you must practice that a lot. And we and we talk about who's the helper, and we really try to work on communicating with the person that's a helper, stating it so that they know they're rotating and everybody else talking up, uh, so that everybody knows how that rotation is going to occur. But you know, I think if you're in the middle of the lane, the biggest key is keep them out of the paint. Mm -hmm. You know, your job is to force them two or three feet to the left or right if they're catching at the top of the key, and not to let them have a direct lane line dive. Those are really hard to recover from, and if you're somebody that is constantly opening your hips and allowing that. You know, I think what we work with our kids on a lot is on fakes, not jumping um, and not opening up our hips, but trying to make sure we're still forcing to the outside. 
Yeah, great stuff. And uh, you mentioned rebounding. I mean, 10th in the country in defensive rebounds per game and 29th in the country in rebound margin. So, and you reference it. I mean, is it just a case of emphasis within the program or what are some other things that you're doing to get that good at rebounding? Well, in addition to rebounding drills, I will say this. Anytime we're competing, if we're going against our practice squad, our men's squad, every time they get a rebound, it's a point. So if, if and, and I let our players have that too, so that we're going to go get offensive offensive rebounds. We're rewarding them or we're penalizing them for giving up offensive rebounds. Um, our men's coach has a drill that I absolutely love that we've stolen from him. It's called perfect possession. And so you're playing in the half court and the clock starts at 30. And so every time, let's say you're working on a scout that week. Uh, for instance, we've got an exhibition against Fair State. So we're running Fair State's offense with our practice squad. Um, our defense has to get the clock to zero before the drill is over with. If, if the clock gets under, if it's around 15 seconds left on the shot clock, it becomes a sideline out of bounds and it's a sideline out of bounds that they run. If it's a eight seconds or under, it goes underneath out of bounds. And so now we're working on their underneath out of bounds. If the guys get a rebound or they score, it goes back to 30 and the drill starts again. So the kids can't get out of this drill. They just keep going and going and going until that clock hits zero. So not only have we worked on guarding Ferris State, half court we've worked on their sidelines we've worked on their out of bounds under and we've had to finish it so it's not just do we know it it's can you get the stop and at the end of the day we're we've prepared for special situations as well which i love and getting our kids really hard nosed about it's not just can you guard the play but can you actually get the stop and can you get it over and over again uh so i absolutely love that drill it's a great drill and the other the other part of that drill if people would like to steal it is if you take a charge it's minus five on the clock and if you get a steal, it's minus three on the clock. And so our players love competing in that. But I will tell you, when when the guys get an offensive rebound or they get uh, or they sink a last second shot, boy, the kids are like, oh. But it's great for resilience as well. That guess what, guys? Hey, that happens in a game sometime. So let's prepare for real life situations. If you don't have a practice squad, let's say you're a younger team, it's good to go against the two teams against each other, and you keep track of the points that the other team is getting while this team is trying to get the clock to zero and then you flip it. And then the winner of the game that has the most points wins. So, you know, that's a way to do it. If you don't have a practice guy squad, like we do, but what I'll do is I'll try to maximize our practice time at one end, that team's going against, you know, who we're getting ready to face and the other teams reviewing all of our plays uh, out of bounds and, and half court. And then we flip flop to try to maximize, or we're doing shooting drills on the other end. So I just don't like to see a lot of kids standing during practice. So we're always trying to keep them moving and thinking. Yeah, maximize their time on task. And I saw it recently, actually, at a Division One practice, a women's practice, and they did do uh, their team against their team. So it was uh, it was really fun to watch. And uh, just the competitiveness and the mindset stuff that we talked about at the beginning, it just comes out in that drill, doesn't it? It does. And, and that's where you reinforce, you know, great players bounce back quickly. And so, you know, hey, this is this is it. And, and I love doing that drill about halfway through practice when they're already tired, because let's make it realistic. Let's not do this at the beginning when we're fresh. Let's do it when they're tired so that the mental toughness aspect really has to come into play. And the other part about that drill is it obviously creates a ton of awareness about special situations and a whole bunch of unique things that are, again, not predictable in advance. So they have to figure it out on the fly. So I'm curious, do you let them coach themselves or sometimes do your staff coach them or the different situations that come up within perfect possessions? 
One thing that we do every day, and I learned this from George Radley a long time ago, is that we have a practice captain every day. Mm. So it's not just our captains of the team that have been elected. Everybody on the team rotates through it. So what we do is I'll give them a quote for the day uh, just to kind of start things off and get them talking. They have to read the quote. They have to explain it. And and so it's some kind of motivational quote for the day. Sometimes I try to mess with them by giving them something kind of deep um, and they can ask a teammate if they don't understand it. But during practice that day, if things are going really well, I'm complimenting the practice captain. If things aren't going well, instead of me constantly pulling them together, I'm like, hey, practice captain, what's going on? You know, this this practice is not going anywhere, you know, fast. You better fix this. So they get timeouts to call to bring everybody together and they've got to somehow try to fix it. Now, if it's a younger player, I'll walk by that huddle and kind of listen. Uh, I laughed because one year I had a kid that just smiled. She didn't know what to say. She brought him together and then she just looked at him and smiled. I thought, Lord, help us. I'm going to have to help her. So after that practice, I took her side and said, hey, let me give you some key phrases. Here's some things that you need to think about. You know, listen to what the coaches are saying. Just repeat it when you go into that huddle or say, hey, guys, we're, we're not rebounding. State the obvious. You know, this isn't hard. So what it does is it builds your leaders. It builds their voice. Um, it helps take the pressure off the captains because after we've been through this cycle a few times, uh, everyone's trying to help. But then what we do at the end of practice that I love is they evaluate each other. So today, Laneja Brewer was our team captain and we had a great practice. So when we brought the team together, I said, how did Lowe do today? And it was great for her to hear the feedback of the kids. Hey, Lowe got us together when we started to struggle. and Boy, she helped us bounce back quickly. We heard Lowe the whole practice today. Um, you know, she was upbeat. She brought energy. And then on the days that we have a captain that struggles, it's good for the team to be very honest with them in that huddle to say, hey, maybe I forgot who the practice captain was today. Boy, that's an insult, right? Um, or, hey, you got you got to get to us before the bottom falls out um, and to have a pulse of the team. So those things kind of come into play during drills like perfect possession, because if it's not going well, they'll say, hey, coach, time out. They'll huddle up. And if I don't feel like the point's really getting driven home needs to, then I'll talk. But I love that it builds the ownership of the team that, hey, this is your team. And what do you want to accomplish here? Um, and and are you ready to do that and, and speak up and maybe not be the popular one on the street today in order to get us where we need to be? Well, I love that. I mean, after 240 episodes, it sometimes seems like, oh, I'm not going to learn anything. But I always do. And I always get beyond that. I get magic like that. So thanks for sharing that. That's that's great insight into that process. And you pretty much answered my follow up questions, which was what happens if they do get constructive criticism and then how you help them learn what their voice sounds like. Because, again, the way to create leaders is to put them in leadership situations. And talking about that, can you also talk a little bit about the value of following? Because that puts other people in following situations, which maybe maybe they wouldn't normally be as well. Right. Well, then the great thing about those days is that uh, what I usually ask them, too, is now do you guys appreciate the pressure our captains feel every day? And and do you understand why you need to pull up part of the rope and help them? Because it's really hard for them to do it every single day and they're going to have bad days, right? What if we all took some of the weight off their pressure, off of their shoulders, and we all said we're invested in leadership, we're all invested in communication, we're all paying attention to who's working hard and who, who needs to pick me up every day. Um, I think that's the value of that. And, and on those days, they're not the practice captain. My captains have to be the followers, right? So they kind of listen to what the practice captain's doing that day. And if they don't feel like the point's being said, they let them speak first, and then they may add to it. Uh, but they're not the first go-to. And so it gives them a little bit of reprieve, 
but they're still like a wingman uh, on those days. Uh, but I love it. I, I, I think it's something that we've started doing it. Gosh, I must've learned that a decade ago and we've done it for a really long time. Uh, I, I appreciate that nugget. That was probably one of the greatest things I learned from him that day. Uh, just because sometimes what I found is that you may have a kid that's kind of quiet in practice and the day you give them the practice captain title, you find out they're an amazing leader, but had you not given them the opportunity, you would never have known. And then there's times that you think, man, this kid's going to do a great job today. And then you realize they don't know what to say. Years ago, our men's coach and I used to bring in a Navy SEALs team uh, to train our team at six o'clock in the morning for like three or four days. And he taught me a great lesson because he had the kids go out onto Lake Erie in, in rafts. And he said, coach, I want you to sit in the middle of one of the boats and I want you to pick three captains that day. So I picked my three point guards. And he said, you have to sit in the middle of the boat and you have to keep notes, but you can't say a word. And he goes, I'm going to put them through an obstacle course. And I want you just to listen to learn what the leadership is on your program. So the first boat I was in was crashing into the rocks. Boy, it was hard. I couldn't say a word. And I thought, man, you know, I thought this kid was going to do a great job. And she failed miserably. Uh, she was a young kid in our program that needed to learn. So, you know, I just took notes about what I needed to do to help her. Second kid comes in and she's a little older. And I thought, man, she's going to do a really good job. What I found is that her tone was pretty negative during the time that she was coaching the kids. So I didn't realize that before, because a lot of times when they're huddling on the court during a game, you're not there. You don't hear what they're saying. And so I wrote that down, like I'm going to have to change, help her change how she says something. And then every time we did the, the obstacle course, he switched the captain in the boat. So I got a chance to sit in every single boat with the captain, a new captain. The team stayed the same. The captain switched in the boat. All three times, one captain won, no matter which boat she was in, which was a great lesson for my team because that captain was positive. She gave feedback early and often. Um, the kids, it was a joy. Their boat was laughing a lot because she made it fun. Um, and they wanted to win for her because of how she delivered her message. And that's something that we echo through the rest of our team since is that, you know, gosh, the people that I thought were saying the right things, I learned a lot by listening. And I think that's what I learned from this George Raveling uh, idea is that we we don't need to talk as much. We need to make sure there's some ownership too on our team and and make sure we're also paying attention to how things are being said and that we're preparing kids for leadership opportunities. We've all probably heard of Jeff Jansen's leadership skills books. I, I make our captains go through that uh, to learn his ideas because I think they're amazing. Um, but then we take it a step further with this George Raveling deal. Well, you're putting it into practice, right? You're actually giving them real opportunities to practice it. And the other thing that strikes me about this practice captain idea is obviously it's creating empathy for you as coaches, which is really important nowadays yeah. to be able to have your players appreciate how hard it is to make decisions as a coach and to inspire, again, followers to, to follow. Well, and it reemphasizes that whole thing about it being an energy giver. You know, we talk about being an energy giver and not an energy vampire. So you absolutely have to be an energy giver the day you're a practice captain, but hopefully that carries on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it goes beyond just your experience as practice captain. And mm -hmm. as I said, you become a better follower. So uh, another part of the uh, the piece of the puzzle for your success is obviously reducing turnovers. And you talked about you only averaged 12 turnovers per game, I think 30th in the country last year. So talk to us about that and the value of that for your program. No, I'm sure every coach does this first part, and that's basically just talking about how the ball is our team's ball. It's not about you and your shot. It's about what is the best shot. 
for our team. And so, you know, some of it's making sure our spacing. We talk about defensive rotation a lot, but we spend a lot of time talking about offensive rotation, you know, creating double gaps so that when our drivers drive, we're not bringing our help to them. Understanding spacing, understanding that if I drive, not only do I need someone in the corner ready for me, but I also need somebody rotating behind me so that if I get stopped, I've got an option. And understanding too, you know, we spend a lot of time on rotating defenses, taking away our post. If we drive and we draw the post defender, being able to not only see my defender, my post defender to see if she's open, but to look even further. The other layer is, has the corner come off and have they have they covered the post? That's something that as players start to go through the game, they think they understand, hey, I'm a great driver. But we, we try to talk about, do you really truly see what's going on here and who's rotating and how to see it so we can best take advantage of what the defense is doing to us. And I think that takes time. I think that takes lots of drills and reps. Um, I also, when we scrimmage, I'll, I'll have a rack of balls and I'll put, you know, we're going for 10 minutes. I may give my team three balls. And every time they turn it over, we take a ball away. And what they hate about it is I really don't care what the score is. If you run out of balls, you lose. And so they really value each possession a little bit more. And then we do watch a lot of film. Uh, not hours upon hours, but we do break down highlights and lowlights for the kids so that even with practice, they can come up with my staff. And our practices, I've really cut down through the years. I'm more about quality over quantity. I try to save enough time that we can do these individual film sessions so that I, some players have to see it before they understand it. They can walk through it, but unless they see it on film, they don't have that aha moment. So we try to show them by film too. Do you understand the spacing of this? Do you understand why when she gets below the free throw line, we've got to have somebody behind her? Do you understand why you can't creep up or in because you're bringing your defense to them? And I think all those ideas combined help us to take better care of the basketball. I was talking with an older coaching colleague of mine, and we were talking about film back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, and the value kids have now with film, oh. the speed of it, the quality of it. Yeah, uh, I remember pausing it. Back oh. when I first started coaching and all the lines that were through it. And Two VCR I don't even know system to dub it. I know all those things. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's amazing what we can do nowadays. You mentioned yeah. highlights and lowlights uh, a few times. So uh, just give us a bigger picture then. Are you showing the lowlights first, the highlights first, or how are you grouping that? And you mentioned team film and individual. So are you doing those in both spaces as well? Yeah. So, you know, I try to keep mine to 15, 20 minutes. I may show, but I'll be honest, it's about even. So it may be like seven minutes of each the day after a game. You know, I think it's fun for them if we've won to celebrate really good moments because we want to reinforce those um, and especially hustle things. Right. So if there's a loose ball that somebody really put themselves out for or a, a charge, I might rewind that, put some fun music behind it um, so the team can all celebrate it and laugh or somebody finished through contact and made a big play, a uh, big moment in the game. Um, but really, it goes back to our values. Right. So. Did we get defensive stops? And and it might be a possession where, boy, we just really were gritty. And and the team can see that's a wonderful moment for us to recreate in another game. Um, if it's a low light, it might be, you know, hey, we did all these things and then somebody didn't run the play right. And so all it takes is that one person to mess up the spacing or to uh, not set a proper screen or, hey, we did everything right and we moved on our screen or we drove too soon and it became a moving screen or legal screen. So it's showing them just the little bitty things that are big things that could have. And what I love to do, if we lost, I like to go through and say, okay, 
guys, we lost by five. We missed seven free throws. So number one, we could have won just by making more free throws. Number two, maybe we had three more turnovers than what we would have liked. And those occurred in transition. So we need to do more transition drills and we need to take care of the basketball when we're doing them. Those transition, by that's six more points we could have had. Um, and then we talk about the stops that we didn't get. We didn't block out four times. Well, those four blockouts, maybe one was a foul, so it was compounded. Maybe that total is 10 points there. And so, you know, we add all that up and I'm like, guys, you fix one of these and we win. So I try to put it in perspective of it's not a mountain we're climbing. It is little bitty minute things that make a big difference, a big impact on the game. We change those. We're right where we want to be. So I think it's goes to the confidence and the composure aspect of we can control our own destiny. That's great stuff. Great insight in terms of that. And, uh, you know, that connects to your offensive uh, choices, which is chin series. And uh, talk to us a little bit. I mean, because, again, the tendency with sometimes chin series is you get too structured. But in Mm -hmm. watching some of your clips on synergy and whatnot, your players seem to have a lot of individual freedom within that to be able to obviously make basketball decisions. So talk about how you build that into it. Yeah, we try to we try to really drill that our kids have the freedom based on what the defense is doing to make reads. And so if people are overplaying us, they can go back door or they can reverse the ball and go back the other way. Um, we we want to make sure that we're cutting hard. That I think that's the one of the biggest things in Chen. And and you want to run it high, right? You want to have you want to run it really high and wide. Uh, because if you do and you can pull the defense up, those back cut that back cuts, if you continue to cut hard and you're very disciplined in it, you will get those. Um, and you've got to make sure you're doing it. Where it's really effective is when you have a five that can step out and shoot it too. Uh, because if that five man is hanging out in the paint, you know, being able to pop her sometimes is really, really hard for teams that cover up their defensive issues by sagging the post player in the paint. Uh, but I think even when you catch it on the wing, if you can swing it quickly and people overplaying, you'd be surprised how many times you can drive the rim off that. So I think for us, it's really taking care of the basketball. I let our practice guys jump out of defense all the time to try to get steals so that our kids understand if this if this happens, we do this. And if this happens, we change and do this because I want them to be able to read and react instead of me being a a robot. You know, I don't want them to be a robot. I don't want them to be mechanical. I want them to really have a great IQ for the game and know what to do and when to do it. Not that we don't have quick hitters and sets that we can run, but I think the older I've gotten, I really want to teach players how to be um, more intelligent and to use the information that we've given them so they can become a a better player. And it keeps me from having to call as many timeouts. Uh, What we're trying to do, too, is give our players a chance to really read that ball screen coverage and understand, you know, hey, if they're hard hedging or if they're icing or if they're soft hedge and under or sagging or switching, what to do. And, And we're trying to arm them with that before we ever get to the game so that I can even say it on the fly if they didn't do it right. And they know exactly what to do without a timeout. Well, it's a huge change in the game is the quality or the use of the ball screen especially by the guards over the last 10 years, isn't it? I mean, ball screen used to be a method of just moving the ball almost. And now there's, you know, flips of the screen and snakes and, uh, you know, all these different decisions right off the ball screen. It's really impressive to watch, isn't it? It is. It is. And and I think what we've learned through all these different angles and re-screens and ghost screens is that communication is paramount. Mm -hmm. And we all have to communicate loud, often, and early. And not to mention uh, communication, but also understanding spacing for your players off the ball. And that that's some things that stood out for me is obviously you already mentioned the one thing, which is your players driving the score when action is happening, 
because the help is occupied within the chin series. Somebody just sees that opportunity to be able to drive to score. And that that was noticeable. But also, you know, just their ability to be able to space off of ball screen action. You mentioned ghosts or rolls or things like that, or even cuts off the ball. And that's such such a fun part of the game to coach nowadays, isn't it? It really is. And 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 the other thing, and I will compliment these kids to death. They're so unselfish. Mm-hmm. I think when you can breed that in your team, like let's find the best shot. Um, you know, and and you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna derail a kid if they've taken a shot with a hand on their face, but especially with your younger players, because sometimes they don't realize the game's moving so fast that they think it's a great shot and you're like, hey, to your left was a wide open shot. Um, but that's why we just keep drilling the film. We keep drilling the situation in practice because we want it to be crystal clear. And the other thing is one thing we preach in our program is don't call for the ball if you're not open. Mm. Don't create noise. Um, we only call for a double if you're the person that got doubled because we don't want a lot of people screaming it and the post player doesn't know where to throw it. Um, we want the voice to, to come from the direction it needs to go. And and it's important for us to do that because, you know, it's it's really hard when when you hear things from every single direction. I'm glad you brought that up. And I want to talk a little bit deeper about that because I've had this conversation with many coaches about perimeter players, especially calling for the ball. And I've always said, well, it alerts the defense. And then the other part of it is perception precedes communication. So if they don't see it, by the time you say it, it might not be open anyways. I agree. I I think, you know, one thing that every year at the beginning of the year, and this is something we're continuing to work on now, and sometimes you even see it more when you go against, say, a zone, is that you see players start to get a little stagnant and they're like, they pass and they watch. You know, we all have a couple of players on our team that pass and they watch and their body language isn't signaling, I'm going to score and you got to pay attention to me. And so we we show a lot of film of that. Look at your body language. Would you guard you? You know, and you're hurting us because you're not a scorer right now. And so making sure that as our players move throughout our offenses, that they're a threat and that they are paying attention to what the defense is doing to understand when they're open. Uh, we all have had post, or post players and perimeter players that sometimes aren't aware, hey, you're open. Uh, so it's recognizing that you're open, uh, verbally saying it, that you need to pass, telling them where you want to pass and then meeting it so that it doesn't get stolen. You know, all those things I think are kind of a lost art sometimes, uh, but we really do on both sides of the ball. We talk communication a lot. Coach, as expected, just uh, incredible knowledge shared and great nuggets. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for sharing the game with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was an honor. Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com to check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.